Hello, everyone. We want to welcome you to the Citizens Advisory Podcast presented by the Citizens Advisory Pennsylvania. I am Jess Stalnecker, Executive Director, and we are joined today by a very special guest, Attorney Chad Schnee. I just want to say to you, Chad, that when we asked the 1,800 members of our Facebook group for some podcast topics and guest ideas, you were at the top of the list for a Q&A. <laughs> So um, we just want to say thank you for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to be with us today. Um, I want to give you kind of a proper introduction, a little bio. Um, so we know that you are a seasoned attorney uh, with more than a decade of experience. Um, you've served your clients in a wide variety of matters, including labor and employment law, municipal issues, guardianship um, matters, and you're also an authority on right to know law. Um, you worked in the Office of Open Records and have authored several editions of definitive guidance on that statute. Um, and so we also see your successful litigation strategies that have been hailed as innovative in the Philadelphia Inquirer, in, Inquirer <laughs> sorry, and you've appeared on the Megyn Kelly show. I love her um, in various radio programs to discuss your work. Um, you've also argued several cases before the Pennsylvania Supreme Court to include repealing the mask mandate for Pennsylvania schools. And I think that that's where most of our audience will probably recognize your, your name. So just to kind of kick it off to you, Chad, I would love for you to expound a little bit specifically on that mask mandate case. Sure. Well, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, and uh, the fourth edition of my book on the right to know law, and this time the Sunshine Act too, I uh, just submitted to the publisher, so that'll be coming out uh, before too long. Great. Um, and the Sunshine Act deals with with open meetings for for anyone that uh, doesn't know. Right to know law deals with open records of government. Um, yeah, in that mask mandate case, um, you know, I I uh, ended up getting involved in that case through right to know law stuff of all things, because people desired a little bit more transparency with their government operations. Mm -hmm. And uh, kind of one thing led to another. And, and my client asked me, you know, to kind of look at um, how we can challenge this mask mandate. And one of the things I looked at was the disease prevention and control law and uh, and some problems with it in terms of how the then secretary of, of health had set forth this mask mandate. Um, and we challenged it in the Commonwealth Court. Uh, and we were very successful. We won. Uh, the, the order was repealed. We argued the case alongside uh, Tom King, uh, a, a very another great attorney uh, from uh, from the western part of the state, and uh, and we were able to get that mask order overturned. Very proud of that victory. Yes, that was huge. In fact, that's really and, and we talk about this all the time on the podcast. Um, that's really what got me involved in really paying attention to what's going on in schools and even understanding um, the right to know law and transparency and sunshine laws and all those things. I think that the mask mandate really is what activated many parents. So um, we certainly um, are appreciative of your work on that case. Um, well, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think I think with respect to masking, I mean, it really led a lot of people to really start scrutinizing the actions of their local government in yeah. so many ways. And you still see the effects of that today. Absolutely. Um, so we're going to, we decided that we're going to do kind of a Q&A session and we accepted some questions from our membership. Um, and I think that this is a great opportunity to kind of get your view on some of these issues. Um, we're going to start and just go through as many of these as we can. Um, and I look forward to hearing your perspective. I certainly am not an expert in law. 
if Ben was on here, not that he's an expert, but he's way more well-versed than I am. So I might not have all the follow-up questions to ask, but I'm sure you'll be just fine in explaining um, some of these answers. Um, so we had a question from member Don Keppert, and she would like to know, in Pennsylvania, is there any way to remove a sitting board member, I assume she means school board member, for maladministration? If this is a possibility, who would have to be harmed? Students and or taxpayers who fund these public entities? Sure. And if I slip into legalese, please let me translate to English. I'd be happy to, to do so. Um, I actually have a case in the Commonwealth Court on this very issue right now. Um, if you're talking about school board members, the answer is yes, there is a way. Um, it's it's section 3-318 of a public school code. Um, what that provides is in very limited circumstances, you can petition the court to remove a sitting school board member. Um, but the, the case law fleshes out that it can't just be for bad decisions. It has to be for a failure to perform a statutory duty under the public school code. Mm -hmm. So if your school district says, you know what, we are going to build a brand new school on top of this volcano, that could be a terrible idea. Uh, but you can't remove them from making that terrible idea. But if they say, uh, if there's a section of the code that says we have to have X number of school days per year, and, and then they say, we're not going to do that, that's a duty they did not perform and they can be removed for that reason. Okay. Yeah. Um, that I, I believe I'm kind of familiar with the case. I think that maybe you're, you're on in, in you the might state. Be. Yeah. Um, so the next one, this is a tricky one. You even said before we started recording that this is a little bit tricky, um, but it's from Marianne Potsko and it says, what gives the right to school districts to maintain student, um, medical grades, IEP living arrangements, um, basically all of these all encompassing records, um, all the information, including addresses, during their time as a student in that district for an undisclosed amount of time, even after graduation. Um, so I know that you had a little thought about that, but um, I'm gonna push that to you. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's. Um, I, I'm certain there's more to it than, than what my research has taken a look at, but generally when you have uh, different schedules like this, the record retention schedules that are set forth uh, by individual districts. So. There's a statute, it's called the Pennsylvania History Code. Mm -hmm. uh, it is administered by the Pennsylvania Museum and Historical Commission. And they set forth uh, a whole list of different types of records, different categories of records, I should say, and what their applicable retention schedules are. I didn't immediately see a lot of these types of records in that list. Okay. Um, I did find a few regulations out there that, that said, hey, things need to be kept for 50 years or five years or whatever the case may be. And I did poke around at a couple of different um, school districts record retention schedules that they individually adopted mm -hmm. uh, under policies. Typically for student records, it appears to be a 99 or 100 year retention schedule. Um, my guess is that there could be either a regulation out there that specifically requires it to be kept for that long that I just haven't located as of yet. Mm -hmm. Or as I often say, Federal dollars tend to come with federal strings. So there very well could be some federal requirement that I'm just not aware of that says, hey, under FERPA, for example, you need to keep these records for X amount of time. 
Very interesting. Thank you for doing a little research on that. That's very interesting. And I never really even thought about it. Um, We are going to go to our question from Allie Warner. Um, She has a situation where a parent, she's Moms for Liberty in Northampton Northampton County. So um, she's a parent where uh, this parent has been asking to view the sex ed curriculum um, from the local high school since August. And uh, her son's a freshman there, but the district has really dragged their feet in making it available to her. Um, So the questions are, is this normal? Should she file a right to know request? Is that something that is a step she can take? And um, it just says, we've noticed our district limiting parents' um, reviewing of curriculum to only the school where their child attends. We don't agree with this. Should anyone be able to make an appointment to view curriculum? First of all, um, I recognize some of the names on your on your <laughs> folks who submitted you. questions. <laughs> so, so hello to all of them. Um, so, so there's actually a couple different um, statutes, regulations in play here. So, under the Pennsylvania Public School Code, mm-hmm. uh, the actual regulations accompanying it, it's PA, PA, uh, sorry, twenty two PA Code section four point four. Under subsection D one and two, it says that a school district has to adopt policies to ensure that parents or guardians have the following. One, access to information about the curriculum, including academic standards to be achieved, instructional materials and assessment techniques. And two, a process to review of instructional materials. So the Pennsylvania Public School Code regulations provide that uh, there has to be something out there for that to occur, that that parents get a chance to review curriculums and instructional materials. Right. The other thing is under federal law. So under federal law, 20 uh, USC section 1232H, subsection A, it says all in, it says it's titled inspection of instructional materials by parents or guardians. L instructional materials, including teachers, manuals, films, tapes, or other supplementary material, which we'll, we'll use in connection with any survey, analysis, or evaluation as part of any applicable program shall be available for inspection by the parents or guardians of the children. So I think you've got a right to access instructional materials and curriculum under both federal and Pennsylvania law here. And and my thought is that um, there's no restriction, either one of these that says it has to be by building, by building only. Right. Now, if you file a right to no law request, I have seen some cases about copyright protection. Mm-hmm. Copyright protection prevents you from making copies, but it doesn't prevent you from being able to inspect the records. So you can still physically view them, come and take a look. You could file a right to no law request to do that. Um, and those are two sections that I would I would note to say, well, wait a minute, these records are subject to public access. You have to let me take a look at them. Right. Um, but that that is definitely something, you know, in terms of whether this is normal, I think. I think I, I hate to say this. I think there's been because there's been not much scrutiny on school districts for years and years and years. School districts haven't had this question until more recently. Right. And so now they are just realizing that they need to catch up with what the law actually provides and and make sure that there's access to these kind of records. So file a right to know that request. See where you go. Give me a call. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um. Our next one, this is interesting. We actually had a conversation with Bernice yesterday. Bernice Fiorella 
Um, she was a school board member for eight years and she talks to current school board members in different areas. And she has a friend in the Bethlehem area um, who is a current school board member. There have been multiple building use requests for a drag show to come in and use the building. This is during non-school hours. So not while students are there. Um, and both times the school board has been able to deny the request due to scheduling conflicts, <laughs> but the board would like to try to find, write, or implement a policy that keeps this sort of thing out of schools without being sued. So yeah. um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's tough. Um, I believe it was in your county or, or, or thereabouts where there was, um, I can't remember the exact group name, but it was like a group of Satanists or something that uh -huh. that wanted to use a, a school for their, their program. You really can't engage in viewpoint discrimination. It's protected under the First Amendment. And I and as much as a, a drag show might not be everyone's cup of tea, uh, and likely is not, it's 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 still constitutionally protected speech. Um, and so you really can't discriminate against one viewpoint versus others. So whether it's the uh the hell Satanists. Or whether it's, um, you know, I, the Moms for Liberty, right? right. Um, you know, it, it doesn't matter what the group is, what the organization is. You have to allow uh, a viewpoint for both sides. So in terms of a policy, you know, it's one of those things where if you truly want to prevent this from happening, uh, your policy probably has to be, we're not going to allow outside groups to rent our space. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, this is one we have been kind of digging into pretty deeply with our organization, but um, this is in regards to the mental health app called Couth. Um, it is a digital app. Um, we know that the age of consent for mental health in Pennsylvania is 14. Um, and we've kind of dug into this app on our own a little bit. So once we know that the minor who's 14 consents to use the app, Within the app itself, there is a question, and we have a screenshot of this question, um, asking permission to use the minor's data for research. So just because that minor, and, and we feel like maybe that is an infringement on parental rights because we didn't have to give our parent, our, our child permission to use the app. However, we're not, we, we should have to give permission for them to collect our child's data. So we're just wondering if there's some sort of a, uh, a legal issue there. Well, you know what? I was looking at their privacy policy after, after hearing about this question and their mm -hmm. privacy policy is quite interesting. So okay. what it says is that if you're under 13, they have to get parental, parental consent. And then it says for folks that are over 14, please see our privacy policy. And there's mm -hmm. nothing explicitly in there about consent in, in anything that I saw. Okay. What is interesting, however, is that they view themselves as being covered by HIPAA. That is very interesting because they are then calling the information they're gathering as protected health information. Mm -hmm. Why is that important? Well, if it's if it's protected health information, you have rights under HIPAA to review and access that information through that. So there is uh, an email address there that that actually you can request information for your about your minor child, for example, of what they're putting in this Couth app. Okay. Um, that would be a very interesting thing to do. Um, okay. There's some exclusions there, but you can also request the correct information. Um, but yeah, in terms of the con actual consent by someone that's 14 years of age or older, 
I believe they can consent to mental health treatment, but in terms of the collection of their data, I question whether that's really something a minor can do. Right. That's that's kind of our train of thought too. So we'll keep digging on that, but thank you yeah. for, for looking into that for us. Um, we have another one um, from our vice president, Amy, um, that asks about explicit and pornographic material um, being housed in school libraries. We know that this has been a huge debate. Moms for Liberty went hard after this um, and as they should. Um, so she gave me an example yesterday, Amy, when, when we were talking and she said, you know, if I were to show, if I were to be sitting in a park on a, a park bench and I were to show a child one of these books, like I would be arrested. Like some of these are so explicit and pornographic but yet they're allowed to be housed in a school library. So she's just wondering, like, what's the loophole in the law that allows that to happen? Loophole is, um, well, yeah, I, I, it takes me back to, to law school. So in law school, um, there's a famous, I think it's a Supreme Court case. I should know this, um, that that a judge said, uh, uh, por- what is it? Um, basically, like, pornography is, is something that, you know it when you see it, something along those lines. I'm terribly yeah. misquoting this. But but in, in the law itself, under the crimes code, under the definition of pornography, there's a specific exemption for material that is in a historical society, a museum, um, county, city, borough, township, or town libraries, any public libraries, hmm. um, and libraries of any school, college, or university. So the reason why a school can display this kind of content is because it's part of a library and it's not pornography as defined within the, the the crimes code. Now, the question that I've asked myself a few times and I've never gone much further than that is, while it may be exempted from the definition of pornography, I always wonder with board members in particular about corruption of minors, right? Because you've got material that even if it's not quote unquote pornography, it is, it appears to be intended to um, subvert and, and influence people and, and to do some, some, I'll say aberrant things. I don't know if that's the right terminology or not, but right. but it's, it's, there's a question about whether that might constitute corruption of minors, um, such that there could be some criminal prosecution available for allowing these books to be displayed to minors in libraries. Yeah. And it's funny because music and movies, they have things that label them as explicit, right? Like if my kids try to play something on Spotify, I can see right away if it has explicit content. I just, I mean, books don't, they just get a free pass. Like they just, because someone authored them. It's so strange to me. Yeah. It's, it's, it's odd. It it really is. Um, Pornography is to a certain extent in the eye of the beholder, but um, you know, I, I do wonder because this is being displayed, bought for by taxpayer money um, and displayed in these school libraries about corruption of minors issues. Yeah. We'll have to look more into that. Thank you. Um, And then we have a interesting question from Ben, our president. Um, Okay. So he says if a horrible policy, right. So just say a school board is creating a horrible policy um, and it is completely unconstitutional. Like for example, all kids have to wear Mark Zuckerberg t-shirts on Friday, something ridiculous, something that's completely against parent wishes. 
is there a way to stop that policy from going into effect even before any harm happens? We've talked with you about certain policies we don't agree with. And a lot of times we have to wait for harm to happen, unfortunately, before we can take action. But he's wondering, is there a way to stop some sort of a, an unconstitutional policy um, before it actually goes into effect? Well, I think for, for any kind of court case, you have to have standing, right? And and the seminal case is it's a William Penn parking garage is, is the case. And it you have to have a direct substantial interest in the case and you have to demonstrate you've been aggrieved, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a policy that is being contemplated, but is not yet in effect, have you been aggrieved by it at that point? Have you been harmed before the harm has happened? You know, I, I think, you know, in some policies, you could potentially say yes, so um, we're going to have a policy that everyone, well, I, we'll use masking as an example, right? I, I know there's, it's complicated, but everyone has to wear a mask in order to come into our school board meeting and speak. Right. Um, are you, by having a policy like that, um, preventing those that want to come in to speak and engaging in viewpoint discrimination that is prohibited under the First Amendment? You might be. Mm -hmm. um, I think generally you want to make sure the harm has already happened because the other thing too is logistically if if it's a contemplated policy if they haven't done it yet it could be changed right, right. you know hopefully the public sees this is a terrible policy i hate mark zuckerberg and they all come in and you know whatever and and they come in and, and express their displeasure to the uh to the school board to say we need to change this policy and they do Right. Uh, but it's that's important for parents and, and people in general to be vigilant, to know what the actions of their local governments are doing. Absolutely. I think it's so important. Even if we can't go to every single school board meeting, I even just looked at my own school boards. Um, there were going to be multiple policy readings at this last school. So, so read those policies, make sure that any changes that they're making, you know, sound like they're on the up and up. So um, yes, thank you for that. And then finally, this is our grand finale of questions because I think it's on everyone's mind. 2024 is an election year. It's already been interesting. Um, so in your professional, maybe just personal opinion, are we ready for this election? Do our laws support, and this is coming from Ben, but we've had tons of questions on election integrity, to be honest. I think people are very concerned about it. Do our laws support having a free and fair election currently? That's a tough question. So um, just by way of background, so um, I, I used to serve as uh, the solicitor for a board of elections for a county here in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. um, I'm currently litigating in the Commonwealth Court an election case from 2020, for Pete's sake. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, th that particular case involves access to voted mail-in ballots. The election's over. We just want to see the ballots. There's no voter identifying information on the ballots whatsoever. We just want to make sure the numbers match up. That's it. Um, and, and we're being fought tooth and nail by both the Department of State and uh, an Allegheny County in that case. So are we ready? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, I think the problem with the whole mail-in ballot system, that the, the overhaul of it, is that it is absolutely rife for fraud. Yeah. Um you know, it's in terms of uh, ballot harvesting, you know, nothing stops one individual from throwing 500 mail uh, mail in ballots into a, a post office box at a time. Some counties are putting cameras on them, but, you know, are they really policing it? I don't know. Um, the other thing, I mean, I, I, I was 
I was involved in the purchase of voting machines um, mm -hmm. at one point, and and I I physically looked at these, and and I was really looking at different models, different things, different ways of doing it. And you know, one of the things that I I always worried about was so some of these machines would print a barcode for for each ballot, right? But there's you don't necessarily know what the reading of that barcode is, what information is actually on that barcode, not to get conspiracy theorists from anyone, but, but I, I think there's some potential issues there. Um, yeah. That, I've often actually not to interrupt, but I yeah. have often wondered because I, that's the kind of machine I voted in all the time. Yeah. It's like that printout and you're like, okay, I'm going to feed this into the ballot box, but I have no idea what this says. It's a barcode. I have no clue what yeah. it, what it represents. So yeah, I thought about yeah. that. And, and even my, my local, I live in Lancaster County and, mm -hmm. um, um, I have, there's an optical scanner, uh, machine that, that, um, that they use where you fill it in by hand. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit better because then you can always look at the actual physical ballots that have the hand markings and if you had to, um, but yeah, I, I worry about it. The other thing too, I, I think that doesn't really get talked about often enough is, um, a lot of the election services directors for the different counties just tend to be older. Right. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them have retired. A lot of them have left recently um, in the last five to 10 years, especially, especially with the whole new mail in ballot system. So you've got a kind of younger generation of election workers leading these different county boards of election by by and large these days, mm -hmm. um, because the I'll say the old guard um, is they don't like the whole new system. There's a whole new statute set of laws. Uh, you have the Department of State sending out new guidance almost every day about different issues. Um, it is it's it's been a confusing time. I think it will continue to be a confusing time. Um, you know, the, the the Pennsylvania Constitution provides that free and fair election aspect, that angle. I think it's Article one, Section five. Um, and that that is something that is concerning. It really is. Um, so I, I wish I could give you a, a vote of confidence. I'm not sure I necessarily can. Um, I think there are absolutely things that, um, that the general assembly could do to, uh, improve the system and improve election integrity to ensure the integrity of the franchise, mm -hmm. uh, voter ID being one of them. Absolutely. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's not something that, um, currently is, is out there and in place. We would think that after 2020, we would try to rush to get some of those things in place, but we're at a meanwhile, Pennsylvania. And, and, and meanwhile, I have a client that wasn't able to enter a school board meeting just because he wasn't showing a, an ID. So, you know, it's crazy. It is. It is. Well, I just want to say thanks again. Honestly, this was really fun. Maybe we can do it again sometime a few, few months from now, if you're not too busy. Um, but this was really fun and we just appreciate you taking the time. So um, again, we really do appreciate also just having someone like you who's willing to um, you know, represent parents like us. You're really a, a champion for parental rights and just transparency in the public forum. So we really appreciate that. Well, thanks so much. And if I can give a shameless plug to, to my website and stuff, uh, my website is schneelegal.com. That's S-C-H-N-E-E-L-E-G-A-L.com. Phone number is 717-400-5955. You can email me at chadwick, C-H-A-D-W-I-C-K, at schneelegal.com. 
And I will post all of that in the description to this video so that Wonderful. anybody can just quickly access all that information and they can find you if they need you. We hope they don't need you, but if they do, you're the, you're the, <laughs> you're the man for the job. <laughs> I, I always say that. I said, you know, I hope you don't need me, but if you do, I'm here. That's all. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, listen, um, never miss another podcast to our listeners. Um, make sure you like, subscribe, share this with somebody who might need it. Um, we're available on all the major po podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, Amazon Music. And a reminder, you can also head over to our website, citizensadvisorypa.com, um, where you can do a variety of different things. You can check out uh, our member benefits, subscribe to our newsletter. Um, there's important documents and resources we have in our document library. And um, under the events tab, you can find information about our second annual Bolathon coming up in just a few weeks. Um, and thank you, Attorney Shanae, for being a sponsor for that, a lane sponsor. We really appreciate your support there. Um, and again, we always say we can't do what we do without the support of the community. So I think it's really important to keep, you know, banding together. Um, and we're happy to have someone like you in our corner. So thank you again for being here. We really appreciate it. Thank you.